0: Over the past couple of months, as we have traversed our way through chapters 11 and 12, and now 13, one gets the sense that the window of opportunity is closing for the Jewish nation. The time for Jesus' departure is growing ever closer. He is drawing nearer and nearer to Jerusalem. Yet the people, as we've tried to highlight throughout the past couple weeks, have not understood him, neither his identity as the Messiah, nor his purpose to bring restoration to Israel. The nation's predicament, as we have shown, is summed up in Jesus' parable of the fig tree. The fig tree has not borne fruit, the master is ready to cut it down, but He delays, and he gives it more time. He's patient with the fig tree. Thus, the Jewish people, symbolized by the fig tree, called and equipped by God, have not borne the fruit expected of them. Jesus has come to gather a harvest only to find an empty tree full of leaves. Therefore, the time for the axe to be laid to the root of the tree, is nearing. The time for Israel's judgment is growing closer. But our Lord, as we saw last week, compassionate and gracious as he is, he gives the people another sign in the healing of the woman bent double. He gives them another sign that they might recognize him. And as we saw, their response was decidedly mixed some rejoiced others grumbled once again he revealed himself and once again he was met with hardness of heart but apparently jesus's words were not lost on all hearing him say things like you hypocrites you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky but you cannot, but why can you not understand this present moment? And saying things like, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Someone understood well enough. They heard what Jesus was saying well enough to ask, Lord, are there just a few being saved? After all that build-up, he begins to ask, well, maybe not everyone is going to come into the kingdom. And so that question, the question in verse 23, and Jesus' preceding warnings, set the stage for today's passage. Will it be, even among God's chosen people, that only a few will be saved? That only a small number will bear fruits worthy of repentance. And so let's consider Jesus' answer to that question. Verse 24, he says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west, and from the north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first. Some are first who will be last. As he often does, Jesus answers their question indirectly. He does not answer affirmatively and say, yes, only a few will be saved. Nor does he answer negatively and say, no, many will be saved. But in effect, he turns the question back on those present. He was asked, will only a few be saved? But responds as if to say, will you be among the saved? The Lord tells his hearers, that the entrance to the kingdom is closing, and it will soon be shut. It is a narrow door, and many will seek to enter and not be able. And not long from now, the head of the household will arise and shut the door for good. Many who thought they would be on the inside will find themselves, as Jesus says, being Thrown out. Therefore, Jesus urges the people to strive to enter. The door is closing, the opportunity is disappearing from before your face, so strive to enter. Do not presume that the door will remain open for you, and do not make your way over leisurely, but instead, fight and struggle, and make every effort necessary to slip through the door before it closes. And in Jesus' admonition to them, there's something to be said for the way we ought to approach our discipleship, striving to enter. At any rate, the Lord counsels them to expend themselves on the task because... He knows that most will not. He warns them that a day is coming when they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but themselves being cast out. They will come to the door expecting it to be open, but they will find it shut. And the head of the household will say to them, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me you doers, thus refused entry, unable to participate in the kingdom of God, they will stand outside weeping in sorrow, gnashing their teeth in anger at, as their fathers and the prophets, those whom they celebrated, those whom their graves were still among them, feast and make merry in the kingdom of God. So, these undoubtedly, for those present, were terrible words to hear. The momentum of Jesus' discourse had been building. He had been warning. He had been giving signs that Israel's not going to listen. They're not going to recognize Jesus and repent. And here he says the door will be closed. So, in these words, Jesus provides an answer to the parable of the fig tree. Will the nation repent and bear fruit? No. Tragically, the door will close on the Jewish nation before most of them are able to enter the kingdom. Hence, Jesus tells them, they will be thrown out, the Jewish people will be thrown out, but many will come from the east and west and from the north and south and will recline at the table in the Kingdom of God, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, therefore, unthinkably, the invitation will be extended to the furthest reaches of the world, as Jesus says in matthew twenty one forty three The Kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Strangers and foreigners will sit with Abraham and Moses and David, but the natives will not. As the prophet Isaiah had foretold so many years before, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation which did not call on my name. Israel rejected their Messiah, failed to recognize him. Thus, the door of opportunity was opened to the nations. And so, as Jesus brought his somber warning to a conclusion, and it was somber, he was interrupted by the Pharisees, verse 31, saying, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Whether out of political expediency or genuine fear of his power, Herod, the fox who had already put John the Baptist to death, has determined to put Jesus to death also. As Jesus was nearing Jerusalem... Herod's plans to kill Jesus were coming to fruition. And Jesus responds, verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. Rather than heeding their warning and averting his course from Jerusalem, the Lord doubles down on his commitment to reach his goal. He will proceed to Jerusalem. He will be crucified. And thus the nation will seal its fate. As he says, I must, I must do this. I'm under compulsion to journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. So Jesus' fate and the nation's fate will be decided in Jerusalem. Jesus will not be diverted from his course. And so he continues, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, having foretold The nation's rejection of him and their ultimate perdition, Jesus laments over their obstinance. Now surely we don't know the tone of voice in which these words were given, but they bleed with emotion. Jesus laments over his people. How often he says, I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That is, throughout history past, Jesus sent the nation prophets and wise men calling them to repentance and restoration and security under his wings. He pled with his people. Listen to this passage from Jeremiah. The Lord tells Jeremiah, go proclaim these words to the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger. For I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and you have scattered your favors to the, to, to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. And then again, this passionate appeal, Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. So, He pled through his prophets in the past, the Lord did, now he pleads in person. He has come in the flesh to gather his people together under his wings, but they would not have it. Jesus did not come to bring a condemnation, but his people spit at his offers, and they cast off his love, and thus his only recourse is to say, behold, Your house is left to you desolate. You've rejected me and you have nothing anymore. So the mother hen has withdrawn the shelter of her wings and turned her chicks over to be ravaged by the fox. And they will not see her again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all in all, Next to Jesus' suffering and crucifixion, this is the lowest point in the Gospel of Luke. It's deeply grieving for our Lord, who was so bitterly rejected, and it is deeply tragic for the Jewish nation, who denied their Savior. And still, to this day, a veil lies over the Jewish nation, a veil lies over their eyes the gospel advances by leaps and bounds across the world but there on israeli soil it advances one grueling inch at a time so we the church those who have embraced the jewish messiah look and pray for look to and pray for our elder brother in the faith that he may open his eyes and join us under the mother hen's wings. But thus far, we have overlooked the reason why the door closed on the nation before they could enter. Why it closed before they could enter. And so I would like to turn now, turn to that now and consider what it means for us. And I'd like to just take you back to verse 24, and read what Jesus said there again. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. So notice the setting of Jesus' parable. It is the head of the house who gets up to shut the door. Thus, presumably, those who come to the door and knock are knocking at the door of their own house. The head of the household gets up, They expect the door to be open to them. It's most likely their own house. So you can imagine their surprise then when they come to the door and find it firmly shut, knocking and saying, Lord, open up to us. And his response is telling. He answers, I do not know where you are from. What do you mean, they ask? We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he answers just the same. I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evil doers. So if we tease this out a bit, the Jewish people come to enter the kingdom of God intended for them, their own home, but they are denied entrance because Jesus does not know where they are from. It is as if to say, he no longer recognizes them as a part of his household. They may bear the outward markers of Jewish identity, but ultimately they come from a different stock than him. They are from somewhere else. And so to anyone perceptive enough to pick up the subtlety of Jesus' words, it's a devastating accusation. God's chosen people had drifted so far from their calling and purpose, that when Jesus arrives, it's as if he's in a Gentile nation. He does not recognize the Jewish people as his people. I don't know where you are from. And if we look a little closer, we can see an entitlement to the Jewish people. The Lord said, strive Work as hard as you can to enter through the narrow door. But the people in his parable leisurely stroll up to the door long after it's closed. That is, they assumed that the door would remain open to them. It's their house after all. It's their home. Of course the door is going to be open to them. In other words, they presupposed merely on the basis of their Jewishness that they could gain entry into the kingdom. Unsurprisingly, we see this attitude reflected earlier in the Gospel of Luke. John the Baptist comes preparing the nation for Jesus, calling them to repentance, and he specifically warns them, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So he tells them, one is coming who is mightier than I. If you wish to be prepared for him, you must repent. But don't use the excuse and just say, well, we're children of Abraham. We're Jewish people. We're, 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 we're good. We're part of the covenant. He says, no, you must bear fruit. Entrance into the kingdom, then, is not based on ethnic identity, a child of Abraham or not, but on the basis of repentance and fruitfulness. Likewise, in the Gospel of John, the Jews say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And he responds to them, John chapter 8, verses 39 and 41, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So Jesus says if the Jews were children of Abraham, not merely by physical descent, but children of Abraham in the spirit, he says they would do Abraham's deeds. They would recognize who Jesus was because Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. But as it turns out, they are not doing the deeds of Abraham. They are, as Jesus says in our passage, evildoers. And so through their unrighteous deeds in opposition to Jesus, they have shown themselves to be members of a different household, the household of the evil one. He says, I don't know where you're from. I don't recognize you. And two episodes from earlier in the Gospel of Luke, And I skipped over these when we went through them, and it's appropriate now to come back and address them with a little bit more attention. Two earlier episodes in the Gospel of Luke shed light on this, uh, this question of who will be admitted into God's household. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus' family, that is his mother and his brothers, came to meet him, but they were unable because the crowds that were obviously smothering Jesus and keeping them from getting close. So in the presence of all, someone shouted, you can imagine from the back, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And again, it's quite a harmless request. But look how Jesus responds. He says, my mother and my brother are these, you can imagine him gesturing toward the crowd, these who hear the word of God and do it. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. So his parents come, they have some, his mom comes and his brothers come and they have some sort of claim on him. Hey, you should go see your parents, your your mother and your brothers, they're here for you. And Jesus says, No, no, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That is, the true members of Jesus' household, those who are granted access to the kingdom, those who the door is open for and they can make it through are those who whose hearts excuse me are open to his word and who live in obedience to it that is what constitutes someone as a member of Jesus's household likewise in Luke chapter 11 in the middle of Jesus's discourse a woman blurted out blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed again something harmless a nice set sentiment but Jesus responds on the contrary blessed are those who hear the word of god and observe it luke 11:28 on the contrary blessed are those who hear the word of god and observe it that is blessing does not come by family heritage or fleshly proximity but rather by accepting the authority of God's word and aligning one's life with it. So thus to sum up, what constitutes someone as a member of the household of God is not ethnic status or physical descent, being an Israelite or being a child of Abraham, but regardless of who this person is, a positive reception of, of the Holy Scriptures, and obedience to it. And so ultimately, many Jewish people find the door closed on them, and I'm speaking in regard to Jesus' time, because they were trusting in their identity as Jews. And in so doing, they failed to hear the word of God and to obey it. And thus, they forfeited their right to become, or to be, the people of God, or to be called the people of God. And so, that's a lot of build-up to get to just a point where we want to um, address ourselves this morning, which is a very simple point. And this passage does speak quite powerfully to us. There's certainly a lot to be learned application-wise, the danger of our own assumptions, right? Thinking that you know we can just mosey on up to the door and be okay. Um, there's a lot to be said about the kindness and severity of God in this passage, shutting the door on the Israelites and opening the door to the Gentiles, and certainly much more. But I would like to focus our attention on one thing, the indispensable and absolute need to hear the word of God and do it. The indispensable and absolute need to hear God's word and to be obedient to it. Indeed, if it were possible to boil a believer's calling down to its irreducible minimum, that might be it. A believer is one who hears the voice of God and obeys it. In the end, it really is that simple. All these things that we do all serve that end so that we can hear God's voice and be obedient to God's voice. So thus, for us, for this half of our body, the first and most necessary thing is that we hear what God is speaking to us. Now, this is, of course, is, 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 is simple and as simple and is not as simple as it sounds. On the one hand, what could be more natural more intuitive than to hear God's voice and to respond to it? On the other hand, what could be more unnatural than to hear God's voice and respond to it? To to not hear, to deafen ourselves to God's voice that appeals to the flesh, It appeals to that part of us that is at enmity toward God, and then to hear appeals toward to the spirit, the part of us that God has renewed and redeemed. So, honestly, in the end, it might be better just to put it this way. All hear with their ears, right? But not all hear with their heart. As our Lord often says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? We can hear the information, but that doesn't always necessarily mean it gets down to the core of our being. So the question then becomes for us this morning is, How does one hear with their heart? How do we hear with our heart? And before we attempt an answer to that question, I want you to see what it looks like when a person hears with their heart. Okay. Before we try to say what it is, I want you to see what it looks like, the end result. The Pharisees, needless to say, and I get tired of using them as our uh, as our foil and beating a dead horse but they really are examples of not hearing with their hearts and this is evidenced by their countless run-ins with Jesus and then, and excuse me on at least 7 of those occasions they accused Jesus of breaking the law and his response to them was have you not read so Jesus is doing something whether it be on the sabbath or whether it be hanging around with the wrong people, and they come to him and accuse him, saying, you're breaking the law. And Jesus responds and says, have you not read? And then he cites such and such a scripture. Now, in all their meticulous study, all their scrupulous memorization, you know the Pharisees and the scribes and the type of devotion they had toward these things. In all of that, They had not heard the voice of God. Because if they had heard and understood God's word, they would not be opposing Jesus, right? He wouldn't have to say to them, have you not read? Do you not understand what the scriptures say? And so thus he sends them away multiple times and and says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he sends them back and says, go to the scriptures and hear better, Hear in such a way that what you hear is God's voice and not whatever it is that you're hearing. So using the Pharisees as our foil, we might say that to hear with the heart is to hear in such a way that it leads to love. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the end, the true mark that someone has heard God's voice is that they have come to love God with all their heart and their neighbor as themselves, that is the mark of someone's reception of God's word if they're truly listening. Um, Augustine, in his classic on Christian doctrine, he kind of sums up everything I'm trying to say, everything that the scripture's teaching us here. He says it is to be understood that the plenitude and the end of the law and all the sacred scriptures is the love of God and our neighbor, right? That's the end of of all of the scriptures. That's the reason they were given, so that we might love God more and that we might love our neighbor. Of course, he's synthesizing Jesus' teaching on the two greatest commandments. He continues, whoever, therefore, thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them in such a way that it does not build on the double love of God and our neighbor does not understand the scriptures at all. So, He says, you know, of course, one can grow in their knowledge of doctrine and their knowledge of theology, and those are good and necessary, but if they don't issue forth in love for God and for neighbor, then truly we're not hearing God's voice. We might be processing information and growing that way, but we still haven't heard deep call out to deep. So to put it simply, right, to hear is to love. To hear rightly is to love. If one is attuned to God's voice revealed in the scriptures, they will grow into fulfillment of that double command for love of God and love of neighbor. So knowing, therefore, what true hearing looks like, we can actually ask ourselves, how can we hear, now don't you ask yourself this, how can we hear with our heart hearts so as to grow in love? How can I hear God's Word preached on a Sunday morning in my own devotionals, in a conversation with my brother or sister, um, wherever it may be, in such a way so as to grow in love? And it's a question that's been bothering me because it's something where I'm thinking, Lord, I I want to hear better. And I, I don't think we have to make it harder than it needs to be. I guess just to hear with one's heart, one needs to open their heart. Hearing the Word of God is not merely a matter of processing a body of information or accumulating a set of facts. Rather, it's a spiritual reception that takes place in the deepest part of our being. It cannot be controlled or induced into action at our will. Rather, it's something I believe that we must wait for. As the psalmist tells himself, Psalm 62, verse 1, my soul waits in silence for God only wait in silence for God only thus to hear with the heart one must wait in silence upon God that is not rushing to extract a bit of encouragement so that we can go our way with our day kind of just get a quick little fill up hear a positive word and then I'm out or impatiently assuming that we know what the passage says All right okay I've read this before I know what this says, let me move on, or getting bored with the scriptures. But instead, waiting in silence and raising your heart to God and leaving behind distractions. In short, to hear rightly, we want to get ourselves to the place where we can say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. So, having said that, we'll wrap up with our message this morning. Having said that, I would just like to encourage you to take some time this week, if you're not already, to wait upon God. If hearing and doing God's word is the heart of the Christian life, that seems a reasonable thing to ask, right? To set aside some time whenever you can find it. It doesn't have to be, you know, three, four hours or whatever it is. Just if you can set aside some time, get alone and open your heart To God. And it's a scary prospect to do that, right? Because one, it means facing ourselves. It means not distracting ourselves from ourselves by doing all these different things, but sitting down in the light of God and addressing ourselves and looking at ourselves. A very hard thing to do. And even harder, it means facing God, right? It means standing in the light of God and getting comfortable there, right? Being open and exposed, but truly opening your heart to hear God's Word. And so anyway, that's, I think, why we tend to avoid those things. It's a scary prospect, but I don't think it should be something that would ever deter us. Because, yeah, that first part is hard, opening up to the Lord, facing yourself, maybe feeling a little bit of guilt that, I haven't been here in a while, I should be doing this more, whatever it is. That's hard, but it gives way to the Lord's presence. It gives way as you wait in silence upon the Lord, and meditate on his word, eventually you begin to hear his voice. Not ancient scripture that's dead and locked in history, but a word for you now. So I'd like to encourage you to do that this week.